Thank you, Andre. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to be with you uh, today. I trust and pray that you and your family are well and safe and, uh, and just uh, at peace in the Lord, uh, particularly as we think about uh, uh, the current events of the day and our place and role in that as we trust in God. Uh, today, as Andre said, today we do begin a new series, and a summer series, and I'm very excited about it. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to share it with you, and I am calling the series Long Story Short, because in just 12 weeks, in the next 12 weeks, God willing, I want us to consider the biblical narrative in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation. I, I, I want to identify uh, 12 key movements, 12 simple movements, 12 key movements, 8 from the Old Testament and four uh, from the New that bring the story of Scripture into a framework uh, that we can better understand and live into. And I, and I say live into because the story of the Bible is our story too. Too often though, we take it in bits and pieces rather than one unified narrative as if doing a jigsaw puzzle without knowing the picture on the front of the box. I know that many of us, including many of us who have spent many years uh, in church or in church settings, we know many of these pieces very well. We're, we're very familiar with some of the books of the Bible, some of the biblical characters, some of the biblical themes, some of the Christian buzzwords that, that make the rounds. We know certain biblical passages extremely well, and we've even memorized uh, specific verses knowing their exact reference by heart. Now all of this is good and beneficial and yet at the same time it has been my experience both personally in my own life and pastorally as I've counseled with others that, that we can spend years gathering all these fragments of biblical truth yet somehow miss the larger picture. So today I just want to begin where the Bible begins. In the very first chapter of the very first book, I want to begin in the book of beginnings in Genesis where we discover and learn how everything began, including our world and, and our place in it. And what we find here is that God is the king of creation, yet amazingly he has bestowed upon humanity a certain dignity that finds its fullest expression as we live in right relation to Him and others. So we'll be in, we'll be in two chapters today, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. I want to read the whole of chapter 1 and then the first uh, few verses of chapter 2. First, will you join me in a word of prayer? God, we want to thank you for the time we have uh, today to gather again in this way as, as your church. And we want to thank you for your word and our time in it this morning. We believe that it is alive and active and that even as we come before uh, your word this morning, as we open our Bibles, that you are opening us to its truth um, and we know that you are speaking, so please give us ears to hear this morning, hear your voice, give us hearts that are ready to receive uh, your truth, and then, Lord, would you minister to us, each one of us uh, individually and all of us collectively, would you minister to us 
in such a way that we would understand more of you and, and more of who we are and more of what this world and our part in it, what it, what it entails. So we look to you for these things and more. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1 goes like this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and, and let birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and 
everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. Amen. So as we learn the drama of scripture of which we are part the first statement that launches and frames the story is found in the very first sentence of the book in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth many of us are familiar with this account but there's always I think always a renewed sense of purpose upon revisiting these foundational chapters I think that's because Creation itself has purpose and because God was purposeful when he created. In the beginning there was God. But God was not lonely. God was not in need in any way. God did not have a need of any kind. Instead, purely as an expression of his love and grace, he created. God was the original maker and he made something that wasn't there before something new now in the past I usually read these verses with a material focus in other words I focus specifically on what God made and when he made it but over time I've learned to recognize a functional focus as well it's not just that God made something from nothing he also brought order and function to non-ordered chaos That's what the second verse is saying when it talks about the earth being formless and void and and darkness hanging over the face of the deep. Because in the ancient world in which this was written, these were elements of non-order. But as we journey through the account, we find God bringing sequence and structure. As God creates, He is arranging things in an orderly fashion. In other words, listen, creation is much more than than a house story. It's more than foundation and joists and walls. 
It's actually more of a home story. It's the story of how life inside the house is supposed to function. And right away we notice this in how the specific days of creation are structured. In that the first three days lay the framework for the second three. And so day one is the creation of time, here called day and night. And this coincides with day four in which the sun and the moon and the stars were made. Day two is the creation of an expanse that separates uh, sky from sea, which goes from, uh, with day five in which were made the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea. Day three is the creation of land and plants in which God gathered the waters to form the dry land and house vegetation of all kind. And thus on day six, we find the creatures of the earth, each according to their kind, including man and woman. And so day one and four go together. Day two and five go together. Days three and six go together. These two blocks of three days each complement each other in a very purposeful, functional way. Straight away, we conclude that God is thoughtful. God is intentional. God is deliberate. God is purposeful. God is all-wise and all-powerful, and He created with a purpose in mind. You see, the wisdom of God is evidenced by this purposefulness. And God's power is revealed in that what He purposed to accomplish was accomplished. Did you notice, as we read through this account... Did you notice how each of the days is bookended by two repeated refrains? The first refrain is, and God said. While the second is, and it was so. In other words, there is an obvious correlation between what God said and what God did. And this relationship, I find it to be reassuring because it reminds us that God is able, what, what, what God uh, sets out to accomplish, He will accomplish. He will accomplish all that He intends. Nothing is left undone or up to chance. Everything that God uh, sets out to do will be done. And there is comfort for us in this. Because by this we are reminded to trust in the Lord in His wisdom, to trust in His wisdom, to trust in His power, and to trust in His perfect timing. Now, you know, of course, God could have made all things at once, right? I mean, He could have spoken it all into existence in rapid-fire fashion. Instead, though, He chose to bring each day into being one day at a time. It wasn't accomplished in a singular moment, which, which I think it hints to the truth that, that all that God intends for creation and for us and for you and your life will likewise unfold over time in accordance with His good purposes. Listen, take heart. The and God said promises of your life will one day become your and it was so reality. What God has set out to do, He will do. 
on that note, I just don't want us to miss the goodness of the Lord as seen here. Six times we find the words, and God saw that it was good. As one day gave way to another, God was pleased with what He created. It was all good. It was good because He is good. The Creator valued and assigned value to that which He created. We need to remember that too. Because sometimes we think of, of the world or the people in the world, when we think of the world and the people in the world, we automatically assume not good. And while it's true that today we are broken people living in a broken world, which we'll get to next week, we must never forget that it didn't start that way. The Bible begins by affirming the goodness of creation, which reflects on the Creator Himself, and it causes us to, to pause and ponder this, to be awed by this. If you've ever stood in awe, before a sun-setting sky, you know something of this goodness. Or been enveloped by the vastness of the stars at night. Or experienced the endless horizon of an ocean that stretches beyond what the eye can see. Or had your breath taken by the panoramic view from a mountain peak. Or been amazed by the wild and expressive and beautiful and sometimes humorous variety of birds and fish and animals and plant life, each according to their kinds. People testify, don't they? They testify all the time how creation speaks to them because it does. King David once wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The Apostle Paul once talked about how God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation calls to us. It beckons us to something beyond ourselves. Something good. Someone good. So that by the time we come to the end of the opening chapter, we read in verse 31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Now the second chapter is clearly related to the first, yet also different from the first. Genesis 1 looks at creation as a whole, including the role we play, whereas Genesis 2 focuses on the man and the woman in their relation to one another and to God. Genesis 2 verse 18 makes a striking statement. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And what makes this so surprising is that it's the only time in the creation narrative where God said, not good. Everything in creation was good and pleasing to the Lord, except that Adam was alone, because Adam was created for relationship, and get this, created with a relational need that even fellowship with God was never intended to replace. 
Not until God created Eve and brought she and Adam together did he say, very good. Eve was for Adam a helper, fit for him. But the word helper here does not mean junior assistant or less than in any way. It means that men and women in general and husband and wife specifically are meant to complement each other. The word helper is a very dignified word, actually, a very beautiful word uh, that, that in fact, in, in other instances, refers to God himself. And so just as Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity and Eve is the Hebrew word for life, so from Adam and Eve we have human life or what it means to live as humans in this world that God has made. In Scripture here, the picture is that of a perfect pair created by God for each other in marriage. Created for each other and yet different from each other. The man is not the woman, obviously. The woman is not the man. Men and women share many beautiful similarities, but we are different by design. God has created the two genders uniquely. We are like and unlike at the same time. You know the story. God caused Adam to fall asleep into a deep sleep. And while Adam slept, God took one of his ribs and created Eve. Adam awoke and like a proud and loving father walking his daughter down the aisle, God brought Eve to Adam. Adam looks at her in amazement and he declares this at last. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And, and, we, and we see this. With this we see the like-unlike relationship to be celebrated in, in human marriage. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is like me. She's not like the animals. She's not like the trees. She's not like the creatures of the seas. She is from me and she is like me. And yet, amazingly, she's also unlike me. She's wonderfully different than me. She's not man. She's woman or maybe Adam was like, she's, whoa, man. You get the point. Men and women, husband and wife, are like and unlike at the same time. One minute you're completing each other's sentences, like. The next, you're celebrating each other's differences, unlike. And this is what God intends. And it's very good. Like and unlike at the same time. The first couple was created for each other, yet was wonderfully and necessarily different from the other. And they were given to each other. Not just Eve to Adam, but also Adam to Eve, and that together they would become one. It says later in verse 24 that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And this, this idea of one flesh carries a sense of wholeness and completion. It, it, it's not about feeling whole because whole and happy feelings come and go, don't they? 
Instead, it's about becoming whole, becoming one. Even as Sal and I have experienced over our 26 years of marriage together, and as many of you can share from your personal experience, when you go through life's thick and thin circumstances together and you hold fast to one another while clinging by faith to God, the abiding joy of marital oneness permeates and begins to entwine your two lives into one. And so what we have here in, in this chapter is we have relationship on the human level as well as relationship with God. And so we read back in chapter 1 how God created humankind in his own image. In verse 27 of chapter 1, uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To be created in the image of God is what distinguishes humans from the birds of the air or the creatures of the sea or the beasts of the earth. Nowhere else in the creation account does God create in his image. Only when coming to the creation of the human race do we find this phrase. Let this settle for a moment. When the creator of the universe set out to create something in his likeness, something more like him than anything else he created us. Now that is a mind-blowing thought. This means, among other things, that we have inherent value as people that isn't conditioned on, on our ability or performance. Listen, you have enormous worth. You have incredible dignity before God because God, through no doing of your own, has placed His image upon you. Does this not give life greater meaning? I mean, how might your perspective change were you to live into the truth that, that unlike anything else in all creation, you have been made in God's likeness to show the world what God is like? Consider, consider the many and varied fish and birds and animals and insects. There are many and varied shapes and colors and behaviors. Consider the wonder of a flower in bloom, the constancy of an ocean tide, the warmth and faithfulness of a rising sun, as awe-inspiring as these things are, as magnificent as they are in their own right. They cannot reflect the, the, the excellence of God as we can. And they aren't intended to, not in the same way. We've all had that experience, haven't we? We've all had that experience of gazing into a starlit night and just feeling small and swallowed up by comparison, wonderstruck by the sheer grandeur of it all. And yet even the stars took a back seat when God created humankind in his own image. Because God has made us in his likeness, to represent Him in this world. He has given to us the, the requisite authority over non-human creatures as well as the responsibility 
to care for creation itself. We read this in chapter 1, verse, um, verse 28, and again in chapter 2, verse 15. However, the cultural mandate to fill the earth and exercise dominion is never a means of exploitation, of using and abusing other creations for selfish gain. Instead, it's always to mirror God's uh, character and to accentuate the inherent goodness with which He created and bestowed upon His creation. You know, as we ponder the reality of being made in God's image to image Him, we come to learn that honoring God with our lives in no way detracts from our personhood, but in fact completes and perfects it. Because when your relationship with God is right, everything else falls into its right place. Even the comment at the end of chapter 2, about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed conveys this sense of relational rightness. You ever thought about that comment? Nakedness is the epitome of what it means to be transparent. It is the epitome of what it means to be vulnerable. But in our world today, sadly, we tend to associate nakedness with shame, even perversion. That's, pr that's probably why those dreams are more like nightmares about being naked in public are, are so unsettling. You know what I'm talking about? You're, you're at work or you're at school, you're doing something, just part of your daily routine, and then suddenly in your dream, suddenly it dawns on you that you aren't wearing any clothes. And that is terribly, terribly unsettling. You start scrambling like mad, trying to find cover, all the while wondering, how long have I been like this? How many people have seen me this way? And what are they thinking of me? It's terribly unsettling, those dreams. So when it says, and by the way, please tell me I'm not the only one who has those dreams. So when it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It should catch our attention. Because again, it reminds us of how things were at the beginning as intended by God before human guilt entered the picture. The statement, this statement, this verse is far more than just a lack of clothing as one author put it. It's about a kind of living that allows others to see us for who we are without judgment or fear. Made in God's image, yet also made from the dust. We are image and dust simultaneously, says John Mark Comer. We have enormous potential as those who bear the image of the divine. And we have obvious limitations as those who are formed by God from the dust of the earth. And learning, 
I believe learning what it means to be human is stepping into both realities, both our potential and our limitations in a way that is transparent and authentic and without pretense, in a way that is real and in real and right relationship to God and others. And then finally, lastly, it's important that we remember the seventh day too, which is as much a part of creation as the other six. In fact, although humans are the climax of the first six days, I believe the seventh day is actually the climax of the whole account. Because on the seventh day, God rested. Let's read it again. Chapter 2, the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now why would God have to rest? Ever thought about that? Did God get tired? Was the exertion of creative energy depleting for him in any way? Is God like us in that he came to the end of his work week exhausted and couldn't wait for the weekend? Obviously not. And so the mention of rest here isn't about God's need for recovery. It must be talking about something else, right? Which in fact it is. In the, in the ancient Near East, rest in this sense was synonymous with command and control. So when a kingdom was at rest, for example, it meant that all was well. In other words, this is a statement of God's kingship over all that he created. It's a demonstration of peace and shalom that everything was as it was supposed to be. Also in the ancient world, the gods were thought to rest in temples. Temples were often constructed as places of rest in hopes of appeasing the gods of the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, gods of the earth and the seas and such. And so when the Bible says here that God rested, it's saying that He rules the sun and the moon and the stars. He rules the land and the seas. He rules the heavens and the earth. He is the king of the cosmos, the creator, not a created thing. And He has taken His rightful place upon the throne. When God rested, it was the cosmic coronation of the king of creation. This is an inauguration ceremony in which God is bringing stability and security and order into the world so that all human and non-human creatures can live in peace under His sovereign, sovereign care. And that's why we're, we're to practice Sabbath and keep it holy, by the way. It's not simply because we need rest, 
But more importantly, it's because rather than working our fingers to the bone, we're to remember that our lives are in God's capable hands. You see, Sabbath is an exercise. Sabbath is a discipline that reinforces our need to trust God rather than self. And so what we have in these first two chapters, we have this creation of the world and everything in it. And then we have God taking his place upon the throne in his temple as if to say it is exactly as it's supposed to be and I am in command and control. And this temple theme with God on the throne runs throughout the Bible until until what begins here in the first two chapters of Genesis comes full circle in the last two chapters of Revelation. As one of my seminary professors once taught Genesis chapters 1 and 2 picture the people of God living in the place of God the place that God made the people of God living in the place of God dwelling in the presence of God in perfect peace because he is king of creation And upon us, he has bestowed dignity and honor that reaches its highest heights when lived in right relation to him and others. My encouragement for you this morning is to acknowledge his kingship over your life and over our world today. It's to live into this creator-creature relationship as God intends, both on the horizontal human level and on the vertical level with God. It is to trust Him, to obey Him, and to enjoy Him. And when all of these things fall into place, It is to be at peace. May God help us to be at peace today and always. Amen. God, again, we thank you. We trust you have spoken to us today. We ask that you would continue to impress these truths upon our hearts hearts and minds and in fact upon our very lives we celebrate your goodness that that you are good and everything you made was good and it was just as it was supposed to be we celebrate your wisdom that you knew exactly what to create and when to create it how to create it We celebrate your power today that that all that you set out to accomplish was in fact accomplished and will be accomplished. And so we just take great confidence in you this morning. May you help us to acknowledge your kingship over our lives and over our world today that we may walk with you even 
even as they did in the very beginning, that we may walk with you in perfect peace, unashamed, transparent, authentic, and real, in real relationship with you and with one another. And for these things, we need your grace and care. And so we bring them before you in humility and also with a great sense of expectation. We pray for these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.